Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. The Quick Podcast is a proud member of the Compliance Podcast Network, which is ably managed by Tom Fox. We're also sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights, which is a veritable treasure trove of information to keep you up to date on the latest issues in risk, compliance, ethics, privacy, and security. Today's guest is a veritable treasure trove of knowledge as well. I'd like to welcome Deborah Sabatini-Henley to the show. Please tell us about yourself, Debbie, and welcome. Hi, Mary. Well, I'm just so thrilled to be here. I think what you and Lisa have created is is its own treasure trove and such a gift oh, to our profession. So thank you very much for doing that. Pleasure. So tell you about myself. I am, um, I'm a mom of three grown daughters. I am um, a wife and a daughter and a sister and a friend. And I'll bet that's not what you thought I would answer right there. No, but, but I like it. Well, you know, one of the things that I have learned, I guess, over the years is that my work doesn't define me and Mm -hmm. it's just a, it's just a part of who I am. And, Mm -hmm. um, so what really defines me, I guess, at this point in my life is, you know, what my values are, you know, what, what drives me and, um, you know, what drives me really is my family and uh, being a good role model and a supportive mom and wife and sister and daughter and friend. So how that connects to my work, I suppose, is uh, that my focus is really on the importance of trust and Mm -hmm. dignity, um, love, and positivity. Mm -hmm. And so in all of those roles, including my work, those are the things that that guide me. And um, so from from the start of my career, I have always been a learner. I was an engineer. I, uh, I started as a civil and environmental engineer uh, for supervising construction in uh, the 80s. So you can imagine that um, I encountered all kinds of interesting things that ultimately fell under a compliance umbrella. Um, but it was, it was really, if I, if I think about my, my engineering education, it really was a cross-discipline program that I was part of um, at, at Duke, where I went to engineering school, called Science, Technology, and Human Values that always kept me interested in things kind of outside of engineering? How does, mm-hmm. how does our work um, as an engineer or as a company fit into society? Uh, how do we do what's right? You know, just because we can do something doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's right to do it. Mm-hmm. So I suppose there was always part of me that, that wanted to, to focus more outside of applied engineering. Mm-hmm. I, um, I came out of law school at coincidentally, at a time when underground storage tanks were the focus of the EPA here in the States. 
And so as a baby lawyer in a Washington, D.C. law firm, I was immediately an expert in something, which was kind of a bizarre feeling. Mm. And so I practiced, I practiced environmental law for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I went in-house at that point because I had given birth to our second and third children, twins, um, mm-hmm. our, our younger daughters. And someone told me that I needed to go in-house to get a life. And uh, mm. back then, which was the, you know, I guess it was 1992, mm-hmm. um, that was the case, that that mm-hmm. lifestyle in-house was better than lifestyle in a law firm. I'm not so sure that <laughs> is the case yeah, anymore. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, um, but it was really a very important pivot point in my career. Um, I, I like to say I'm first-generation corporate. Um, my, my parents are, um, a psychologist and an engineer, but both first generation, uh, college and, and professional school, um, my father's first generation American. So dropping me into corporate land was like being an alien landing on earth Mm. and, um, or, or, you know, being an expat, everybody probably listening to this knows what well, maybe not everybody, but many people, you certainly know mm-hmm. what it feels like to be working in a country that's not your native land. Mm-hmm. And so there were many, many, many lessons that I learned along the way uh, that that were more about how to operate in a corporate environment than about how to be a good environmental lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, from an uh, ethics and compliance standpoint, my very first assignment when I went in-house uh, at AT&T, which is where, where I started, mm-hmm. um, was uh, to support um, an effort to get the company off of the debarment list because the company had had its first ever criminal conviction that happened to be in the environmental arena for mm-hmm. what was really a very tiny infraction, but at a time when the EPA was trying to use big companies as examples, um, to encourage self-policing really, which is what a lot of the the risk areas we talk about in compliance are all about. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so my job was to, to prove that we had an, uh, an effective compliance program that met the sentencing guidelines Mm -hmm. when the sentencing guidelines were still sort of, you know, the ink was still wet on the paper Mm -hmm. and sort of, we were all trying to figure out what it, what they were. Mm. And so I had help from some great outside counsel. And, you know, back in those days, everything lived in binders and different parts of the company. And probably the most important thing um, for me from an ethics and compliance professional standpoint was that I was partnered with the environment and safety uh, uh, director for the, the business that had had this problem. And it was a I think eight or $10 billion business unit. Mm. And I very quickly learned the importance of taking a management system approach to driving compliance. And mm. so that meant because this was AT&T and because Bell Laboratories at the time was sort of the heart of everything that happened there, we all had to learn about quality management systems, even in the law department, mm-hmm. everything, everything we did. Mm-hmm. had to have a quality management focus. And I have used that approach, the plan, do, check, act approach mm-hmm. um, ever since. 
in everything that I do with ethics and compliance, with culture, uh, and with leadership. Um, because it's all, it's all about continual improvement, right? Everything we do. Mm-hmm. So, um, so scrolling forward, that became my focus um, with the second and the, the first and second spinoffs at AT&T while I was um, still responsible for environmental mm-hmm. compliance, I was given broader responsibility for other regulatory areas. And um, as I, as I mentioned, um, you know, when, when you had us all thinking about the people who sent elevators back down for us mm-hmm. in your book, mm-hmm. the, the woman who sent the elevator back down for me was Pam Craven, who was the general counsel of this new company that had spun off. Mm. And she turned to me, this was 1999, turned to me and said, you know, that management system thing you're doing with environmental and some of the other regulatory areas, could you just take that for all of our regulatory areas, all of our compliance stuff and make a global initiative? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Great. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the beginning of my, my ethics and compliance career. Um, I did that. I went, um, I, I left that, the in-house world and went to what was then Integrity Interactive, which is part of SAI Global now mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Um, I went to BP for a year to help create uh, the, the global ethics and compliance program there. And then, frankly, hit my first really serious burnout in my career and decided Mm -hmm. that I needed to take a break. And so I hung up a shingle as a consultant Mm -hmm. and reached out for some of my friends who were also in-house either compliance lawyers or chief compliance um, officers and just said, you know, you have a project I can do. I'm I'm just trying to get my head back on my shoulders before I go back to an in-house job somewhere. And that was 2004. I mm-hmm. started, um, my company was then called Compliance and Ethics Solutions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are, what, 16 years later. I, mm-hmm. I renamed the company, rebranded um, about three years ago to, uh, to be Resility. So mm-hmm. our focus is on resilience mm-hmm. since everything we do in ethics and compliance mm-hmm. is about organizational resilience Mm -hmm. and the work that we do with leadership and culture is about organizational Mm -hmm. resilience. But I also think that a focus on individual resilience is such an important part of creating psychological safety and Mm -hmm. about ethics and compliance professionals, particularly being uh, resilient enough to deal with everything that have to deal with. So the sort of coaching piece of our business is to help ethics and compliance professionals and in-house lawyers um, create their own strategies for preventing burnout or at least recovering from it um, Mm. and being being resilient enough to handle what you know what we handle we handle a lot Mm -hmm. we handle a lot I know that burnout is a very complex topic and in conversations that you and I have had offline um, burnout doesn't just happen from being too busy or too overwhelmed with work. It can also happen in situations where um, you feel like what you're trying to do is, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill and it keeps rolling back down and hitting you and it's futile. Or maybe you've had a major Absolutely. setback and it's caused you a great deal of beyond stress, maybe trauma, 
uh, moral injury is a word that you've used or a term that you've used. So burnout yes. is is uh, all in, encompassing in, in some respects. It goes far beyond the just being too busy and frazzled. It can have more wide ranging focuses. And so I don't think we can do it justice um, in you know uh, just a small segment of a podcast, but. I would like to hear from you if there is anything that you feel like is a, a piece of low-hanging fruit when it comes to burnout. So if someone's really at the end of their rope and you had um, you had the ability to just give them one gem, one really special piece of advice, what would it be? Be gentle with yourself and mm-hmm. put your oxygen mask on first. Mm-hmm. So, you know, self-care is critical to everything that we do, but particularly Mm -hmm. in this profession, Mm -hmm. uh, because for exactly the reason you put your finger on, we are often asked to take on something that's not popular, Mm -hmm. something that takes a lot of courage Mm -hmm. and something we can, um, we cannot always get the support we need to do. And, and, you know, the moral injury piece of this that you and I have talked about offline Mm. is that sometimes we actually run into um, unethical or inappropriate behavior mm-hmm. in this profession, I'm mm-hmm. sad to say. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would expand that, right? Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Um, and not just compliance, but, but legal mm-hmm. and compliance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're the people who are supposed to be the guardians of mm-hmm. the values and the principles. And mm-hmm. so if we find ourselves working for someone who lets us down, betrays us, mm-hmm. doesn't support what we're doing, that's almost worse mm-hmm. than I agree. Then right? Then mm-hmm. then I mean, we know we're going to be pushing a boulder uphill with certain kinds of business people, certain kinds mm-hmm. of you know narcissists. Mm-hmm. We don't expect them to be in the law department and the compliance office, mm-hmm. and so. I guess the be gentle part of this, uh, be gentle with yourself part of this is know that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Know that there are many, many of us in this profession who are feeling that kind of, you know, sort of, well, moral injury, Mm. betrayal, Mm. trauma, even Mm -hmm. if there's retaliation involved, if there's Mm -hmm. harassment, if Mm -hmm. there's any other kind of, bullying, for example, um, know you're not alone and reach out. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a a wonderful profession of Mm -hmm. friends and colleagues and, um, and get support Mm. for knowing that what you're doing is the right thing. Even if you're working for a boss who doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Great advice. Thank you, Debbie. I think, um, thanks for asking. (laughs) Not unrelatedly. Um, I wanted to ask you about psychological safety because that's an area in which you have a a keen interest. We know that from Google studies of successful teams, it's the number one key feature of a successful team. In your own words, will you tell us um, why psychological safety is so important for workplaces? And I think we kind of got into that, um, especially in terms of and in respect of compliance programs. Um, Yeah. 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 Why is it key? Sure. Sure. So, um, so psychological safety really has its roots in 
in business productivity and um, employee retention and um, you know, in its in its earliest days in the in the '60s, the focus was on pro- team productivity and the 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 free flow of information. Uh, I would say Warren Bennis, who's sort of one of the, the if not one of the uh, granddaddies of uh, ethical leadership, um, says told us that the free flow of information was really the driver of productivity and innovation and the, the great thinkers who have come along since Amy Edmondson, uh, who people are probably familiar with talked about the connection between psychological safety and team productivity. Um, Tim Clark, who has a, a great book that I highly recommend the four stages of psychological safety. He talks about, um, psychological safety as rewarded vulnerability so rewarded versus punished. Um, I would maybe paraphrase that as candor. So rewarded mm-hmm. candor. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it important to us? Well, in the obviously in the ethics and compliance field, we want people to speak up. We mm-hmm. want them to be candid about what's going on, right? We want them to ask questions. But I think it's important for us to make the connection to why the business cares about it. You know, mm-hmm. if we're if we're in any organization, not mm-hmm. just a, a for-profit organization, mm-hmm. the idea that people need to feel safe mm-hmm. and feel that they are welcomed to share their thoughts or their mm-hmm. concerns, that is a business productivity interest, mm-hmm. not just a compliance interest, right? You know, we want mm-hmm. the early warning signals. Mm-hmm. That's why we want psychological safety. Mm-hmm. But the business wants ideas, wants mm. people to, to bring all of their ideas and their whole self mm-hmm. to the work that they're doing. That kind of extra effort and feeling engaged. You know, these are the things that some of the things that we measure, corporations measure in employee engagement surveys. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Because it's important to the productivity of the organization. It's important to retaining uh, your, your great talent. So mm. how can we leverage that in the ethics and compliance thing that, that we've been doing for a number of years is kind of cross-pollinating um, the, the, the demand for the, the, the need to feel that you belong to, mm-hmm. to the organization you're working in mm-hmm. is what's going to generate psychological safety. And uh, the, the sort of the overlap between the business needs, the innovation mm. needs, and the integrity or inclusion needs mm-hmm. for psychological safety seems to me like, like a great place for us to connect what we do to the business mm. strategy. Yeah, that's and that's awesome. And that's actually, that I was going to say that was my big aha many years ago um, when I was in-house and, mm. and thinking about how to get people to speak up. Um, the employee engagement surveys that many of uh, many of our companies, probably people listening, have done. One of the things they do ask is um, if they're if they're based in the Gallup twelve um, management um, rubric. Um, one of the things they ask is, um, does your well? I guess you have to rank this statement. My opinion counts at work, right? Or Mm-hmm. Something like, you know, I feel mm-hmm. comfortable sharing ideas at work. 
Mm-hmm. Well, what I always love to do was look at that set of results mm-hmm. to find the fruit in, in where are my champions in the organization for the speaking up culture that mm-hmm. we're trying to develop. Because if you can find the managers who are already getting high scores from their people around um, making people feel comfortable trying new things, it's okay to make mistakes, share your ideas and so forth, ask Mm -hmm. questions, then it's only about a half a step from there Mm -hmm. to get them to understand the value of helping people challenge the status quo, raise Mm -hmm. concerns, ask questions, say, I don't know what to do, right? That's Mm -hmm. what we need. And that kind of environment really has to come from leadership and management first before it can come from your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then for level setting purposes, I'll ask you to describe in your own words, what is psychological safety? So for me, I really like the idea of rewarded candor. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like I like the idea that uh, when somebody feels like they belong, Mm-hmm. then they're going to feel safe sharing what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. And from the standpoint of integrity or inclusion, if someone feels uncomfortable or feels that something's going on mm-hmm. that, that they, and they don't know how to handle it, mm-hmm. in a psychologically safe environment, they're going to raise that concern. They're going mm-hmm. to challenge the behavior. And they're not going to be retaliated against or mm-hmm. snubbed or um, mm-hmm. e- even some of the, you know, the, the tiniest um, mm-hmm. behaviors of shunning, you know, mm-hmm. not being invited to lunch or on the right. outing or given mm-hmm. the good product uh, projects, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in a psychologically safe environment, those things aren't going to happen because when you speak up, mm-hmm. other people are going to say, oh, right, that's what we do here. You know, it's, it's painful to hear, but gee, you know, she's got a point. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, this is something actually that goes back to the way we built safety cultures in the, um, at least in my experience in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. um, was not the company saying thou shalt wear a hard hat mm-hmm. or, you know, thou shalt wear safety goggles in mm-hmm. the, you know, in the lab. It was your neighbor, your colleague saying, mm-hmm. Deb, where are your safety goggles? Mm. And me and me saying, oh, Mary, thank you. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, you know, who the heck do you think you are? Mm. Right. It's because we care about each other. Mm-hmm. We belong to each other. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking out for you and you're looking out for me. That's mm-hmm. kind of at the core mm. of a psychologically safe environment in a culture of integrity. Mm-hmm. And that's how we have to build cultures of integrity in every other risk area that we mm. have, you know, we, we together are responsible for each other and for the organization as a whole. Mm. And speaking, that happens best with psychological safety. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the build, what are some low hanging fruit ways to increase psychological safety in organizations? Well, my, my favorite way to do it is with role-playing and mm-hmm. um, that's, that's a lot harder to do now that we've been living in yeah, yeah. Zo- Zo- Zoom land for two mm-hmm. years. But um, we have a, a couple of different workshops that we do 
that um, are actually kind of fun. They're at first, Mm -hmm. they're maybe a little uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but um, the idea of playing a character who's either a bully or a leader who doesn't listen or, you know, all -hmm. all of the characters that we wish we could wave a magic wand and change Mm -hmm. in order to build psychological safety, Mm -hmm. those, those characters are not me, my boss, my VP. Those are just characters in a story. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the characters who have to deal with them are, we're just play acting, right? We're Mm -hmm. not really calling anybody out directly. Mm-hmm. So if we start there with something kind of fun mm. and we can sort of as a, maybe as a mirror on our organization, hmm, where do these behaviors exist in our, in our organization, in our team, then we can move from there into, so how'd that feel? And, you know, mm-hmm. what worked, what didn't work? Mm-hmm. Uh, can we use in, in our case, we like to use the values of the organization if they're, if they're meaningful, because mm-hmm. we, we all know that not everybody's value, you know, all values are not created equal. Right. <laughs> um, but if, if we can connect a speaking up environment mm-hmm. with s- some of the values, mm-hmm. then we're helping to create a vocabulary where people mm-hmm. can say, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think that what's going on here is consistent with our value of mm. fill in the blanks, respect, care, teamwork, whatever. Mm. Um, but I do think that 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 the low hanging fruit around getting people to talk, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have to get beyond the culture assessment. Mm-hmm. That, obviously, that maybe maybe that's not obvious. Mm-hmm. We have to start with a culture assessment mm-hmm. because that's the easy easiest way mm-hmm. to get you know, sort of the pulse of the environment, but fixing it, the low hanging fruit around Mm. fixing it has to come from getting people to talk about it because we can't just lecture. We -hmm. have to get people to apply it, try it, Mm -hmm. run it through their, you know, their brain, their heart and Mm -hmm. internalize what it takes Mm -hmm. to create an environment where everybody feels safe to speak up. Yeah, and um, interestingly, with culture assessments, on the day that we're recording this, it's the day that's hit the news that Rio Tinto, which is a mining company in Australia, they've just published the results of uh, a culture survey. It's quite grim, but I think to a certain extent that the novelty of them putting this out and having it public uh, shows uh, strong accountability towards uh, Absolutely, t- taking it seriously and wanting to do the right thing. So that's an interesting uh, movement that we've it seen. Sure is. That we're seeing currently, and it'll be interesting to see if other companies <clears throat> take the the same, uh, take the example, and and do the same. Yes, I. You know, I have to say the um, hearing the CEO speak mm. about it publicly. Mm. I mean, that took courage obviously I agree Guts. it's mm-hmm. right it's mm-hmm. and and humility mm-hmm. um but boy if you if you want to be accountable mm-hmm. you know say it out loud mm-hmm. and I I give him a lot of credit for that I mean obviously there are a lot of things they need to work on mm-hmm. and if if they were my client I mm-hmm. would say bravo for having the CEO talk about it yeah but be be careful what you what you commit to Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you do a culture assessment and you find, 
you know, lots and lots of issues that you want to work on. It's Mm -hmm. important in, in, in my opinion, it's important to just really boil it down to commit to, to moving the needle on. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're doing an assessment every year Um, and then, and then the other, the other piece of advice is this isn't just about the leadership creating the environment. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, um, it's also about employees engaging on the fix because, Mm -hmm. you know, right. So, so first, yes, it's great. The CEO said we have these results and we're going to address them. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, not every company is going to do that publicly, but certainly mm-hmm. you want the CEO to mm-hmm. tell the employees, we have these results, here are the results, mm-hmm. we want to address them. And we're committing to do, you know, two or three things this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my experience, um, it's always best to have some employee input on what those two Agreed. or three things are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's where the you know, focus groups, or I, I love creating working groups that are mm-hmm. cross-functional, um, you know, c- cross-geography, multi-level, um, so that you get a good feel for what employees think is possible. But then we really need employees to own it with the leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we ultimately, we all are part of the culture. The culture is just the, the sum total of all the behaviors, right? Exactly. And the behaviors... Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not just leadership that has to change. All of us have to change. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We um, we have a phrase at Fresenius, which is we all own compliance. And there's even a, a slide for uh, slide decks in which you have to speak on the we all own compliance slide for every presentation. Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's... I, uh, might, I might borrow that, Mary. Thank you. With attribution, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll share some more information with you offline about that one. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, some really great points there. And I love the focus group suggestion. I have found that really useful for yeah. culture surveys, even like my training data analytics. So, for example, when you, you've been training on a certain topic and then you get people telling you that they want more training on that topic and you're like, I'm going to need to drill down and understand yeah. from you, especially when it's topics like, say, retaliation. And, you know, you think, okay, we've been telling telling you that we have a strict policy against it, da 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 But if people still, you know, have it, that fear, holding focus groups can be a really awesome way Absolutely. to understand the root cause and help you tailor your campaigns in a, a, a better way so that Definitely. you're, you know, not saying the same thing every time and not getting any results. And, and not getting traction. Yeah, you're exactly. absolutely, I, I totally agree. And mm-hmm. I, you know, in, in, in looking back now, um, some of my, some of my greatest challenges around culture assess, culture change mm-hmm. work, um, were convincing leaders to do the assessment in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the second part was getting employees engaged on the fixes as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, the C-suite saying, okay, HR and compliance get together and fix this. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. we, we really need to go out with some focus groups and, and create some working groups. Um, I, in, in a couple of cases was able to get um, union leadership involved mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they're employees too, they're colleagues too. And mm-hmm. excluding them from this is, um, I, I think, misguided. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of what I've learned over the years um, really came from not talking, uh, not, mm-hmm. not assuming, mm-hmm. um, not asking leading questions. Mm-hmm. but asking open-ended questions about mm-hmm. why we're getting the results we're getting on mm-hmm. culture assessment. And that's hard. You know, we're all, we're, we're problem solvers, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the leading question is, you know, we think we know why mm-hmm. people don't trust senior leadership. Mm-hmm. So, but instead of asking, is it, is it that you don't see enough of them? Mm-hmm. You know, what it, no, just say, mm-hmm. Hmm, this was the result. What mm-hmm. do you think causes mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And you know, right? We can be surprised mm-hmm. if um, if if our assumptions were wrong. It's always good to challenge our assumptions. Yeah, I, I think that's um, such an important part of our uh, professional professional skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say is you know we 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 have to every once in a while. Uh, I think it's Alan Alda quote says something like, you know, our, our assumptions are our windows on the world. It's important mm-hmm. to clean them off once in a while mm-hmm. to make sure we're seeing things clearly. Mm-hmm. And I nice think, um, isn't that good? And I think that is really important to remember when we're analyzing results of whether it's a culture survey or a risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we shouldn't assume we know what's going on in the business. Mm. We should be talk, talking to people um, directly. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of, the, one of the things that I learned way later than I think I, I would have liked to have was that I used to think that just, you know, having one country be a pilot country and getting input and feedback from them, that that was a sufficient two-way conversation but I've come mm. to believe that it's not. And when you think about it in compliance, we request that the business involve us early and often when they um, are thinking about, you know, engaging mm. in a transaction or, or doing something. And, you know, if we're asking that of them, then we should be holding ourselves to the same standard. So if you are thinking about reviewing your policies, for example, Novartis um, had uh, their colleagues help they uh, yeah. right for the code of conduct. Um, if you are thinking Loved about, that. yeah, um, drawing up your training plan for the next year, what kind of data mm. have you included or who have you spoken to to get um, qualitative information that will help inform what you're trying to do? It, even if it's just, if it ends up vindicating what you thought, then you can point to, yeah. you know, the rationale and say, this is what the decision making was based on. Right. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is what good ethical decision-making is all about. So we mm-hmm. should model the behavior that we're asking, right? Exactly. You, you think you've made a good decision. Well, mm-hmm. try it out on some people and if they, <laughs> right. And if they mm-hmm. give you different perspectives, maybe you need to tweak your decision or mm-hmm. if they affirm what you said, if they come to the same conclusion, mm-hmm. um, okay, great. You can feel more confident that the decision you're making is an ethical one, but mm-hmm. you're, I love, love your, your kind of flipping it back on us. You know, we want them to involve us early and often. Well, how about vice versa? Right. So right. yeah, that's very good. 
Well, I have one more question for you on the psychological safety front, Debbie, and that is, do you believe that where psychological safety has been eroded in a workplace due to incivility within a team, and this is the moral injury type stuff, such mm. as in situations where mobbing or bullying has occurred, or maybe a very ferocious boss that everybody's scared of, intimidating and uh, traumatizing, can can psychological safety ever be rebuilt? Yes. Mm-hmm. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> this is really the, this is the, some of the tough stuff that, that we grapple with. And um, it's something that we talk about a bit in our, um, our training when we help companies create internal investigations expertise. The, the idea that when the investigation is over and we've made our recommendations and HR and management have dealt with, you know, the, the bad behavior, the, the bully, the boss, whatever. Um, we can't all just, you know, wash our hands and move on because there's been, you know, in the wake of whatever that behavior was, there's been damage done to the, to the working group, the team, the colleagues, Maybe some of those people were interviewed, they were witnesses, they might have been bystanders, they might have been targets of whatever the behavior was. Um, so it's important that we make sure that, that there's work done to focus on not just prevention of, you know, the, the behavior that happened, but that there's work to focus back on the, the sense of psychological safety and connectedness in the people that remain. So, um, you know, throughout an investigation, uh, we remind each other that it's important to reiterate the non-retaliation policy, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether you're talking to, you know, the, the people you're interviewing or the manager who really wants to stick their nose in whatever you're doing, Mm -hmm. we have to, we have to keep talking about the non-retaliation policy, right? Why? Mm -hmm. Because of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And so when we get through the investigation and we're focused on the preventive action, part of the, part of Mm -hmm. the fix, part of the healing that has to happen is to focus on the needs of the humans who are left behind and Mm -hmm. make sure they have the support they need to reconnect and, you know, deal with whatever bad feelings there might be. You know, there might be people who disagree about what the outcome of the investigation was. We, we can't just leave all that dangling because that kind of, the, the energy that gets focused on um, harboring those feelings is mm. not going into um, resuming work, reconnecting with each other, trusting each other, and being, you know, productive together. Mm. I think it's um, important to be strategic as well with the um, the non-retaliation uh, policy reminders. So yes. one of the times that I like to do that is when interviewing a reporter for an investigation or a witness, and after the updrawn warning, I usually remind them of Good. the non-retaliation policy and that cooperating in this meeting um, or any other compliance process, you are protected and um, yes. give them, remind them of the uh, compliance officer for their business unit by name so that they have that fresh in their minds. 
Very, oh, very good. Yes, very good. Yeah, it's a very important part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that brings us to um, the conclusion of um, part one of a part two series with Debbie. Thank you very much for your time, Debbie. Really appreciated speaking with you. And for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this, keep an eye out for Debbie's next episode for part two, where we'll be talking about ESG, a very hot topic. And you'll recall that Debbie started out in environmental law, so she's slightly on the front foot there compared with just about everybody else. Um, She's also recently started a role um, as an adjunct professor, so we'll be talking a little bit about what that's like um, and then uh, some leadership skills. So join us next time. And Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Mary. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.